following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, as I mentioned, I've, I've been on vacation. It is good to be back with all of you. I'm really grateful to be here with you. Um, I'm still kind of getting into the swing of things and catching up on email and all that stuff. You know how it is when you come back from, from a trip. Uh, but I'm here, and I'm with you all, and I'm glad for it. One of the things that I did on my uh, vacation, at the very start of my vacation this year, is that I saw the band Fish three times on three consecutive nights. Now, I know what you all are thinking. I'm so jealous. <laughs> no, no. I know what you all are thinking. Why? <laughs> How? What are you even doing? Um, well, the truth is, it's not for everyone. That is for sure, and I'm okay with that. Um, but let me tell you what I do like about this. Uh, if you don't know this wacky band, the thing is, it's different every time, right? I, the last thing I would do is throw any shade at other major performing acts who have been in the news lately for concerts. But um, when you go see Fish, it's totally different every time. Different songs every night. Three songs, three shows in a row, never saw the same song twice. If I had seen the same song twice, it would have been different. Um, it's always different every time because it's very improvisational. Now, I promise this is going somewhere. This is not an evangelism for Fish sermon. <laughs> But uh, much as with the fishes and the lo- no, I'm just kidding. That's that's not it either. Um, <clears throat> what I want to say is that that approach to music really appeals to me as a musician. I I learned to be a musician by playing saxophone in jazz band. And if you've been in jazz band, you know that like improvisation and sort of making up the melody is uh, part and parcel of what that's all about. That genre of music, and that was vital to my kind of development as a musician. And I, I even have applied this to spirituality in the past because I think that understanding God's will is more like uh, improvising um, musically than um, playing a really specific classical chart, for those of you who've done that kind of music before. Um, but this improvisational thing also appeals to me as a human. Um, in good ways and bad, I, I have to confess, because for whatever reason, much to the frustration of some of the people who, who love me, and honestly, to my own frustration sometimes, I just detest doing the same thing in the same way more than one or maybe two times. Have you noticed this about me ever? Um, sometimes this even annoys my bandmates, because we're not an improvisational band. Um, and if you were to come out to Love and Cup on Saturday night, you would find that out. <laughs> Allow me to make a very quick plug, because this, this also slightly applies. It's a stretch, I confess. But um, we are releasing an album on Saturday night at Love and Cup. The vinyl is in my hands. Thank you. Um, it's not in my hands right now, but you can imagine it. It's 12 inches square. Um, and these songs have been in the works for many, many years in some cases. And, and a lot of it is songwriting that I did while I was on my sabbatical, which if you were around Artisan Church in 2019 when I was leading up to that sabbatical and took the sabbatical, you know that the whole theme of that thing, which I was very generously funded to do by the Lilly Endowment, was understanding um, musical creativity as a way of understanding self and spirituality. And, and the songs that I wrote during that time are now um, being released. So uh, it is a, it's a stretch, like I said, but if you wanted to come out on Saturday night at 8 p.m. to 11 cup, I wouldn't, I wouldn't scare you away. What was I talking about? Improvisational music. <clears throat> I, I love improvisational music in part because I have a deep-seated aversion to being repetitive 
Um, and I, I have to tell you that I feel the same way when it comes to reading and teaching the Bible, especially with stories like today's gospel passage, which a lot of us have heard dozens, hundreds of times. Uh, if you're a, a born and bred church kid like me, you, you know this story frontwards and backwards. And um, I just, I have this thing in my soul that doesn't really allow me to just preach it the same way um, that I've heard it preached or that I've preached it in the past. Um, I even had trouble, when, you know, at times when we've had two or, God forbid, even three services in one day, uh, if you were lucky enough to be serving on a ministry team and see that sermon evolve or deteriorate over the course of multiple times, I just, I cannot do the same thing twice, um, much as I might want to. Um, but in this case, even if you're not a church-going type, everybody will have heard some version of the fishes and loaves or the feeding of the 5,000. By the way, the 5,000, um, that's woman and child erasure, right? a.k.a. patriarchy. They named the crowd as 5,000 people strong because it was 5,000 men. It does say that there were women and children in addition, so it was actually way more than 5,000 people, um, probably many times more. But the, the obvious thing when we, took, when we look at this text, of course, is to focus on that miracle, on that multiplication of the little bit of food to, uh, to the extent that it could feed 15 or 20,000 people. Um, the application, whether it's to try to make some spiritual point about having faith and expecting a miracle in every situation, if you've been in some kind of churches, that's what you'd hear. Or maybe it's try to wrestle with the, the historicity of this account. If you're in a different kind of church, you might hear a sermon that sort of tries to come up with a a non-miraculous explanation that is still consistent with Christian teaching and practice, something like, well, the other version of the story has the little kid who brings the food, right? And maybe that kid's, you know, generosity inspired everybody else who really did have food, let's be honest, to give up all of their food as well. And when everybody started sharing, it turns out there was more than enough for everybody. And that is a good Christian spiritual lesson. Um, it, it doesn't require the miracle. I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not trying to get rid of the miracle, but that's one of the things that you might have heard taught on this passage. Or you might heard somebody try to make a connection to other biblical accounts. So, for example, the wandering of the Israelites. Do you know the story of the people wandering in the wilderness in the deserted place and of how miraculously they were provided with a bread-like substance in order to uh, nourish themselves in this deserted place? Right? We might make some connections between those two stories. That would be a lot of fun to do, I think. <laughs> I'm weird. You might not think it's fun, but I would think it was fun. And these are all good things to do with the text. It's just that there's something in me. I've heard all of those sermons before. I've preached some of them before, and I'm drawn to do something else. So for me, whenever everybody's pointing at one thing, the, the first thing I want to do is look at all of the other things. Right? And so if we're all pointing at the miracle of uh, these loaves and fish being multiplied um, what else is happening around that incident that we could look at to maybe give us a fresh understanding of the passage? Right? Well, one thing I like to do is to, to try to find the little details that we tend to read past quickly on our way to the miracle, right? the setting of this story. I have mentioned it already, but it's, it's a deserted place. And we might ask, well, why were they there? Why were they in a deserted place? And the context clues could tell us that. What does that tell us about this story and how it might apply to us today? Something else we could do is to look at the characters involved. And we could start by looking at the attitudes and postures of the, of the people who are involved. And who are the characters in this story, by the way? There's Jesus, right? There's the crowd, 
who gets fed. There's also the disciples. How did the disciples act in this story? And what does that tell us about ourselves or about God? If we wanted to go deeper to that, uh, in that direction, we could, we could even start to say, um, if we want to see this text in fresh eyes, maybe we could actually imagine ourselves in the place of some or all of those characters to try to it sort of inhabit their mindsets a little bit. Now, when you do that, I think it's important to do it without judgment, uh, at least at first, and try to see um, what that non-judgmental inhabitation of someone else's point of view could teach us about our own points of view, our own tendencies, or what God might have to say to us in the situations that we find ourselves in. So let's just take a few minutes and do this. this, um, Everybody's pointing over there, so let's look over here type of work. Let's go back to the setting. The setting is a deserted place. We can call the sermon today, Hungry in a Deserted Place. It says that Jesus withdrew by boat to a deserted place by himself. He's kind of trying to get away from the crowds of people. Did you notice? Like, wherever he goes, they follow him. So he's like, I'm going to get in a boat. (laughs) Um, But they see where he's going, and they, they they head him off at the pass. Why did Jesus want to go to a deserted place? Well, for one thing, we know from other stories in the Gospels that Jesus uh, practiced what we would sometimes call today maybe good self-care. He withdraws to quiet places a lot. He gets away from the crowds that he has called to minister to kind of uh, frequently. And uh, if you find yourself in seminary, uh, no doubt you'll get... Uh, taught that this is something that you, if you're going to be a pastor or a Christian leader, have to do. I think it's something that all people should do. And uh, it, it, it's like if you wanted to drive from here to California as fast as you could, you might be tempted never to stop for gas so that you wouldn't waste any time. But you know how that would turn out. You have to stop for gas or you'll get there even later. right? And Jesus sort of stops for gas. We see that in his ministry. But why this time? There's something specific that happened. It's not in the text. We have to go a little bit deeper, but there's a clue in the first sentence. If you don't know, we use the lectionary, which is an assigned uh, schedule of reading. So I didn't pick where the text started today, but it starts, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew to a deserted place. What is the this in that sentence? Well, you'd have to look at the verses before. We don't have time to go into it too deeply. Um, I thought maybe somebody had already put it up there. That would have been amazing. Um, But that's not what happened, and that's also amazing, because I don't really want you to get too bogged down in it. But what happened is that John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin and one of his best friends, they literally became friends when they were both in their mother's wombs, had just been brutally executed by this oppressive Roman state. Right At the whims of... If you read the story, it's pretty wild. If you've ever heard the phrase, serve up his head on a platter, it comes from this story. And so Jesus has just lost uh, a person who's very dear to him. You know, we heard a story of that in our prayer time today, and some of you already were kind of feeling that because it's happened to you recently, or it happened to you a long time ago, and you still feel the grief from it because grief never actually goes away. Jesus had this very fresh grief in mind, and, and the crowds were pressing in on him and following him around, and he's trying to process what's just happened with John the Baptist, and so yes, he gets in a boat and tries to get away. And it says that when they headed him off at the pass, 
he didn't get mad at them or say, can't you just give me five minutes? My cousin just died. It says, no, he had compassion on the crowds. And I'm really curious to think about um, how he got from that grief and probably anger and, and all kinds of emotions to a place of compassion. So you're starting to see how having a little bit of additional curiosity about the text can be an asset when you're studying the Bible. And even this thing about me, which I'm wrestling with trying to love about myself, <laughs> never wanting to do the same thing twice in the same way, it can be an asset too because it, it caused me to, in this case, kind of go a little deeper to a different place of the text. So that's Jesus' attitude and posture. It's one of compassion. What about the disciples? Did you notice the disciples' attitude and posture in this story? What did they say about this crowd of people that Jesus had compassion on? He said, they said to him, send them away. They're hungry. <laughs> I think that was probably true, but I also think it was like, boy, Jesus, uh, those people sure look hungry. Maybe we should send them away. Because when you're following a person around like Jesus and you're one of the inner circle and there's this crowd of thousands of people, you kind of might be jonesing for a little bit of time, special time, just you and Jesus, right? But all the people are still there and they say, send them away. Why did they say that? Well, they, they felt they could not need, meet the needs of the people. They, they said, they're hungry and we have nothing here. But Jesus says, oh, no, bring them here to me. So having initially examined the attitudes and postures of maybe the crowd, maybe Jesus, maybe the disciples a little bit, I wonder if we could go to that next deeper step together for just a minute or two and, and really try to inhabit the mindset of these characters. Um, when you come to a story in the Gospels like this and you want to try this exercise, I encourage you to start with the person in the story that you most easily and naturally relate to. And then you spend some time with that character and then you move on to some other ones, right? Um, so maybe when you read this story, you're thinking, yeah, I'm kind of hungry and sick, like the crowd. Or maybe you're like the disciples, you're feeling overburdened by all of the need that you see around you, and you really just want to send everyone away, and you wish you could do that. Or maybe you're like Jesus, and you desperately need some alone time, Right? Let's start there, actually. By the way, it's not wrong to imagine yourself in Jesus' place in these stories. I would uh, discourage you from, from thinking that you are actually the Savior of the world. Um, <laughs> but in these moments, I think it's actually very helpful to imagine yourself in Jesus' place and try to see what did it take to get from where he was to where he ended up. In other words, from grief to compassion in this story. He withdrew from that place in a boat to a deserted place by himself. He had about two minutes by himself before the crowds followed him around on foot from the towns. And, and I wonder what your reaction would be if you were Jesus in that situation. I can tell you what my reaction would be. Um, it would not be compassion. I would probably um, complain and roll my eyes and ask God to take this cup from me, imagining droplets of blood sweating out of my forehead. How did he get from there to the deep compassion that he had? And, and I started to think about this and I began to wonder, is it actually possible that it was the grief he was experiencing was not actually an obstacle to his compassion, but rather was a, a pathway to his compassion? Right? Because when you, when, you, when you develop some spiritual maturity, some emotional and psychological maturity, 
I do think you can get to a place, and Jesus models this for us, where something like uh, in profound grief, rather than making you want to dislike people around you, gives you a, a means by which, a roadway toward, through, you know, across which you can have compassion on them because the, the pain that you're feeling allows you to get in touch with the depths of human experience. And that's what's required sometimes for us to have compassion on people who, let's be honest, are pretty annoying, at least. We might speculate that when he saw their hunger, he, he was thinking about the fact that the hunger might have been caused by the same corrupt, oppressive Roman rule that cut off the head of his cousin in the courts of the king and served it up on a platter. We might imagine that, that he had that sort of rich spiritual life and he just had the capacity to apply his love of one person to all of these people who were desperate in their own way. And by the way, when I say stuff like that, I'm not diminishing the divinity of Jesus. I, I hold to the Orthodox Christian teaching that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. And I think we, you know, if you look at the history of the church, people want to emphasize one and de-emphasize the other. I think the, the beauty and the mystery of it is putting those things together at once. But, and right now, I think Jesus is exhibiting a characteristic of a fully developed human person. And it's not just that he's also God that gives him this capacity to do this, which means I think that we also have the capacity to do it. And so uh, immediately I want to jump to this and contrast Jesus' you know, kind of profound spiritual state with that of the disciples, right? Who were like, nah, send them away. We have got nothing for them, right? I immediately jump to judgment of the disciples, um, probably because I maybe see myself in their reaction more than in Jesus' reaction, and I am perhaps somewhat prone to self-judgment. I don't know about you. But as I said, I think it's important when you do this exercise to start from a non-judgmental place. And I've come to realize that I think the disciples were not necessarily being malicious or selfish. I think they simply really did not think that they could do anything for the people. They might have been tired themselves and hungry. And I know that doesn't make any difference to the people who would have been sent away if, they, if the disciples had their way. But I think it's very easy for me to imagine being in the place that they were. Sometimes, as a pastor, I am overcome by this type of self-doubt. I say to myself, well, the sermon's not good enough. Um, I can't help people with their real problems. I'm not good enough at practicing my own spirituality. What business do I have helping someone else or teaching someone else in these moments? Um, you know, And so it's very easy for me to think that the disciples might have really legitimately thought that they could not help in this situation. And have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't help and what you most want to do is sort of obscure the situation, remove yourself from it or push it away from you so that you don't have to see the thing you can't do anything about anymore? Right? You know, pull up to any highway exit and see the person who's standing there. And the, uh, it's a very complicated situation that brings someone to that situation, right, um, to that place. And we don't need to go into the details of it, but, but I wonder if it's easier to look the other way. I know it is for me sometimes. 
I wonder if that's what the disciples were doing in this situation. And here's why I think this exercise is so powerful. I know I've kind of gone on and on about it. What I think is so powerful about this is because it allows us to slow down and instead of practicing judgment toward a person like the disciples in this story, to practice some compassion for them with this non-judgmental posture allows us to see that we are quite a lot like them, maybe. And then the very hard work begins of practicing that same compassion and non-judgmental posture toward ourselves. Because in the end, when we get back to the part of this story that everyone's pointing at, the miracle of the multiplication of the food, it's really not our job to perform the miracles. It's our job, it's really very simple in some cases, just to not prevent other people from getting to Jesus so that he can do the miracle that they need in their life. And man, are we terrible about that in the church. We are so bad at it. With all of our gatekeeping and our lack of faith, So let me talk about that miracle for just a minute. Because this is the thing. The miracle that Jesus performed in that moment was not just the multiplication of loaves and fish into an amount of food that could feed thousands of people. The miracle also was that Jesus refused to listen to the people who suggested that he send those hungry people away. The miracle is also that these human religious leaders, and I think that's what they were beginning to become in this story, those people fail you. They will again and again. I will fail you again and again. Any leader or pastor you encounter will fail you again and again. And those of you who um, sort of try to practice the way of Jesus and minister to the people in your lives and all the different ways that that means, you're going to fail those people too. And the miracle that Jesus performs is not letting that ruin the whole thing. People of God, those of us who follow Jesus around, may we remember that whatever we see in the baskets that we bring to the story, Jesus has enough to feed all of the hungry people. People of the crowd, those who are the hungry, the sick, the ones who've already been rejected and who are bracing yourselves for the next religious rejection that you will experience. May you know the truth that started with Isaiah 55 and ran all the way up through this miraculous story in Matthew 14. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You that have no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Because Jesus has enough for you, too. And as we proceed on our way in this life of spiritual community centered around the way of Jesus, may we all be given the grace to trust in God, to allow space for everyone to get to Jesus, and to receive the, mir- the miracle that he has ready for us, whatever it might be. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.